that 85% of your engine wear occurs at startup? Yes, that is correct. And this is where lower the friction comes in by putting a protective lubricating barrier on all moving parts. This now gives you full-time protection to make your engine last longer, run smoother, give you better performance, and improve fuel economy. People across the country are reporting some very exciting results. Go to lowerthefriction.com, place your order, and enter in promo code SOS to get 5% off of your order. That's lowerthefriction.com. That was a hell of a slow griddle. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the weekly Secrets of Saturn live stream. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. This week, we've got the band back together. We have 
The Great Baldini, Crow Triple Seven, and Ringo Starr, I mean Wayne McCroy on drums. Everyone, welcome. Well, that was a little <laughs> lackluster this time. The well, muted version two. was better. It was take, it was that was take two. Take uh, two. Take two. Just this is live radio, people. Come on. Take it back and punch in. That's, <laughs> it'll be fine. We'll fix it in the mix. We'll definitely fix go. it in the mix. I'm good at that. But anyway, this week we're going to be doing one of my favorite subject matters, which is, of course, Edward L. Bernays. Now, Crow and I have done two shows, two full shows on Edward Bell, Ber, yeah, Edward Bernays. I've put him as the introduction to numerous other episodes and both live presentations I've done in the world also opened with Edward Bernays because what he did in his life was so freaking influential, it's it's just it cannot be measured. Who knows the work that he did, where it actually went and, and how much it's affected everything to this day. And believe me, the corporations and the governments of the world know it and know it well. Just taking Indeed, the term propaganda and switching it to <laughs> public relations. That was that should tell you a whole lot right there. But anyway, anybody got any opening remarks? Yeah, Bernays. We could thank him for bacon. <laughs> I love Bernays sauce, for sure. I'm not sure those are related, but, you know, it is good. <laughs> Being able to smoke with women, that's a Bernays thing. Yeah, that's, yeah right? That's a Bernays it, thing, too. That is a Bernays thing, for sure. Uh, that definitely but, is. No, yeah, to take, um, you know, propaganda to make it public relations, and then, of course, in the uh, in the uh, political arena now, uh, especially the military, public information officer <laughs> is now the role that they play. Yeah. Should we do a, a Edward Bernays Greatest Hits I don't know if I'll get them all in the proper order, but the reason why uh, you have you eat bacon and eggs in the morning is because of him. Uh, fluoride right. in the water. Uh, this is where I'll call Edward Bernays a total cocksucker because the reason why fluoride got into the water in a, ma- in a major way is because of him. Uh, let's see what else we got. We got women smoking. We had the uh, torches of freedom. That was an early one, actually. Uh, the color green that he instituted in, uh, I think it was around 1930 or so, for the Lucky Strike Company, which is uh, lovely little cigarettes that are still made today. (laughs) I'm trying to see if I could find a copy of the document for everybody. Uh, What we're actually doing is The Engineering of Consent, which was an article, a 10-page article that he wrote that was included in a larger book uh, on on propaganda and, and such. Let me see. Maybe this one will work. Public relations, that's the proper term for it. Public relations. Public relations, but we know damned well that it's just... Propaganda. It's propaganda, baby. It's propaganda. Anyway, all right, let me see if this one... All right, I got one here. I'll just post it. You got a link for a PDF? I've been going through tons of these, and most of them aren't working, which tells me a a whole lot. Can somebody hit the PDF I just posted? Tell me if it's good, please. All right, let's see. I, I just went through a whole pile of them, and most of them weren't working. I got a direct link. Um, I think it should be good. Let's see what people say. We'll see if it works. All right, I'm trying it now. I don't. Yes. Think, is it? it? It lit up for me. Yep. Yeah. All okay. right. All right. Well, we're, we're on like a thirty to sixty minute del- or thirty to sixty second delay, so people can let us know if it's not working. Let us know. We'll we'll keep looking. But if you need to go find it for yourself, it's called "The Engineering of Consent" by Edward L. Bernays. You'll definitely find it out there. You just got to find yourself a link that actually freaking works. All right. So let's get this party started. 
freedom of speech and its democratic corollary, a free press, have tacitly expanded our Bill of Rights to include the right of persuasion. This development was an inevitable result of the expansion of the media of free speech and persuasion, defined in other articles in this volume. All these media provide open doors to the public mind. Any one of us through these media may influence the attitudes and actions of our fellow citizens. <laughs> and again, he's referencing the fact that this is an essay in a larger book of essays. Right, and he's talking about the art of persuasion here. And back in, uh, you know, the classical times, in classical educations, this was called the art of rhetoric. Rhetoric, yeah. Right, and that's something that uh, really escapes most of society today. Uh, the act of persuasion or the art of persuasion, uh, the use of speech to persuade people uh, in one direction or another. Uh, that requires logic and reason. Man. Yes. <laughs> you, reason. Can't, you can't do rhetoric without logic and reason. Oh, well, that explains a lot then. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Logic we, we and reason, the bane of SJWs everywhere. <laughs> yes. So... I, I made a comment before we got on air that uh, Wayne and I were talking about uh, our childhood because we grew up together and then lost touch for many, many years. And I said, you know, a, a lot of the things I can actually recall, because we're both talking about forgetting things that we used to do together, we used to play games together and such for, for a long time. And I said, you know, the thing I can, I can do a lot of times is they're all filed away, all these memories and everything, but if I think of the emotion that was the response to all these things, a lot of times I can unpack it and bring it back to my mind. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That's exactly what Bernays figured out in the 1920s. If he found an emotion to tie to whatever it is he was being hired to do, whether it's sell you a certain kind of cigarette, whether it was to, to put a, a certain bit of propaganda out there, whatever it was, he did tons of stuff in his life. He found an emotional tie and how to do it so that when you saw the product or whatever it was, it inspired something in you and you would link those two together and therefore would hit you over and over and over again. He was absolutely the master, brilliant beyond all belief at, with, at doing this kind of thing. Yeah, that's one of the first things you learn now in um, marketing and advertising is uh, that most uh, choices for purchases are not intellectually based, they're emotionally based. And uh, if you can sell the lifestyle, you don't have to sell the product. Right. right. And this is why uh, in many advertisements, uh, they sell a lifestyle or, for example, you'll see cars with skimpily clad women in it. They're not selling the, the features of the car. They're selling they're you selling a lifestyle. That, they're selling you sex yeah, exactly. because it, yeah, exactly. it's, it's about as base of a trigger as you can possibly have. That's exactly. that. That is so important. Now, I don't know if Bernays really got into that because people were a little classier back then. Uh, if he did, it probably would have been later on. I'm actually not sure. I, this is why I want to go back and possibly do a third show on Bernays because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get to. I did a lot of the main stuff in in the two episodes that Crow and I did, and I have his books now. I want to go through them and just see what what didn't I get to because I'm sure that he did more stuff than uh, that I'm aware of off, just off the top of my head. You know yeah. what? You know what would be interesting is I would be willing to bet that he had first prints of his uncle's work. I wonder if anybody in the world has done a correlation um, between Freud's work and what Bernays did. Well, we could talk about that before we get back into this. Uh, by the way, this article is from 1947. So by the time The Engineering of Consent was written, he'd already done two, I think he got his start in 1919. I'm going from memory here. So 28 years worth of stuff by this point. That's That's crazy. For almost 30 years, he'd already been doing public relations in some way, shape, or form. Uh, one of his early things was with a uh, 
a man named Caruso who was a, a huge opera singer at the time. He was basically his uh, his manager, and and again just just did everything to to target people loving this man more and more and more. And he did that with some other. Early, yeah, he sold um, the image. Yeah, very yeah, early sold on, the was image. able to sell it an image, right? Rather than again, uh, his skill or talent, uh, but sell the image of him as a star. Well, and, well, part part of it has to be tied. You know, if you look at, at Freud or Jung, they're credited with being the first dudes who figured this out about the human mind or that. Whether that's true or not, point is, is Bernays comes along, does a similar thing in marketing. But one thing about Bernays, so I mean. Firstly, how do you separate what his uncle did from what he's doing? Because they go hand in hand. But secondarily, another thing Bernays did is he threw morals out the window. In other words, to get doctors to lie for you uh, in your marketing campaign, that became doable because of him. Right. I, I think he took old Uncle Siggy's work and figured out the whole emotional tie to everything because that is – what makes human beings tick. It's what sets us apart from the animal world and all that is our emotions. So I think he, sure. he looked through all of that and was like, oh my goodness, I can I can take this and, and make an entire massive career out of it. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah, Crow, Crow's right on that he, he reestablished um, the north of the moral compass to be a prophet. <laughs> it was ethic, ethically okay as long as it turned to profit. The bigger the profit, the more okay it was, or ir irrespective of uh, how else it landed in the mores or, or um, you, you know, the morals of uh, the society at large. Well, what he did wouldn't be admitted openly till the 80s. What he did is greed is good, right? So there's your bellwether. Well, we, we discussed this in the episode we just released uh, last week on, on the destruction of the family unit. Bernays had a huge part to do with that because he was instrumental in the early 20th century with bringing in this consumer culture, this I want mm -hmm. everything thing that he, again, tied to an emotional response and got you wanting to buy all this crap that you didn't necessarily need. Yeah, and he called it marketing. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is marketing, but just think about how much junk people were buying because of someone like Bernays that they just, they truly just didn't need it. And and it was getting away from the entire concept of homemade and uniqueness, almost like an artistic flair to how things were made, uh, especially as the years went by, the whole concept of um, – Oh, what's the term I'm looking for? Mass production, break, maybe? Well, mass production, but um, not enforced scarceness. What's the other term where things will break? Uh, planned obsolescence. Oh, planned obsolescence. Couldn't sure, think yeah. of the term, yeah. The, the the concept of planned obsolescence certainly got in there because if you bought something like a, a big old stove or something like that in the 1920s, there's not a lot to it. It would it would last you for God knows how long, you know? Yeah, my so, parents had a toaster that lasted 45 years. Well, Crow's talk, we, we, talked a couple times about one. stuff. Yeah. Crow, what, yeah, what did we, you have? I remember you said you just got rid of something finally after decades. We had a refrigerator from my grandparents, but we still have a toaster that works from my parents' wedding. <laughs> so that's 50, wow. I don't even know, almost mm -hmm. damn near 60 years ago. All right, so we're talking about 50s, 60s, that they were still making stuff that wasn't complete garbage. Well, there's there's a couple sides to this. It's not see most people think it was just simple, but uh, that's not the case. And you can prove it with the light bulb. One of the first light bulbs ever made is still burning, because when they first went to look for filaments, I mean, even bamboo was one of the things they tried. Point is, is even right out of the gate, they had filaments that could burn from the time light bulbs came online. Still burning. One of the original light bulbs. Um, so the idea of engineered to fail or planned obsolescence 
Uh, I think we can hang that right at Bernays' doorstep because what it's basically doing is going against the mores of the time. We had guilds, we had unions, we had all these things where people were big into creating quality and trade secrets were big and the trade secrets were big because you could put quality into a thing and nobody knew how you did it. Um, that's what was driving production of most things before these ideas come around. No one yeah. in their right mind in that day would have planned to make their product fail. Right. And then and one of the, you know, they did nothing but the after that. Great examples of um, the, the Edward Bernays School of Marketing. Uh, and one of, the, one of the great examples of this, uh, in fact, is used in textbooks, is the idea of the TV dinner. Uh, specifically, if you look at the Swansons, uh, fried chicken TV dinner was the one specifically uh, that, again, it was this idea of sort of space age, um, you know, it's the space meal uh, that you can, you know, put in, uh, in this little package, right? Uh, but it was supposed to taste just like homemade. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the 1970s, they turned that on its head, and then um, the the TV dinner now was supposed to, or they they had it supposed to flip it around so that it tasted like takeout. <laughs> it's like they flipped everything up around. It's hilarious. Um, so what became desirable? But the initial introduction of the the um, TV dinner was that it was supposed to taste just like homemade when you don't you know don't have time to cook, and then they kind of flip it out and then they started um, doing uh, the prepackaged meal. Right, and it's just it's pretty pretty interesting, but that's a inter fascinating study if you want to go back and uh, and take a look at um, the advent of the TV dinner is a, a perfect example of the Edward Bernays School of Marketing. It sure well, is. He, that's one of the things he, that we he, brought up in the uh, well, family episode too. Well, he had to too. do the cultural part of that, right? Because uh, the women were in charge of the household, the men were holding down the job, and when they first introduced these quickie ways that were supposed to taste like homemade, the women felt like it was a cheat. Like they were shortcutting their family, and that's part of the marketing he had to implement to get them to accept um, what they considered a shortcut or you know short shrift. Mm -hmm. you know, that happened they, they with could the cake make a mix loaf too. Of bread or yeah, so he dealt with all that. Yeah, the the big thing with the cake mix is another one that I, I was going to mention earlier on. That that one really gets me after doing the uh, the psychological background on that. He, he just came up with the add an egg thing, which targeted an emotion, a very primitive dialed in emotion in females that they were doing something that was of prime importance to their biological right. makeup it, it it he man he was just brilliant at this and boom yeah. all of a sudden these these instant cake mixes would sell even though they they had a powdered egg mixed in didn't matter nope right he he added in that archetypal idea the archetype of the egg and you know that that's kind of where it, it gets you why it's got that Fertility, psychological what? Grip. Freud, Freud, yeah. Freud, 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 Freud. So, so how's it, been, how's it been broken down when people describe everything about Freud? Freud said everything is because of sex, and Jung went a different way, but you can see the smacks of what his uncle said all over the things we're talking about. Well, that's what we said earlier. I don't think they were so classless in the 20s and 30s that they were lacing everything with sex, but there were still pin-up kind of pictures and things like that. Uh, there were definitely pictures of, of women wasn't a, with It just products. wasn't as as um i don't know blatant and overt they still used the, they still used the primal instinct you know certainly and the archetypes, yeah. yeah exactly exactly it just it just wasn't as um <laughs> i don't know debased right. if you want well, to say they leveraged off the division of gender no matter what but no none of it was sexual overtly but all of it was based on gender and sex underneath I mean, think of the things we've just talked about. As well about. as the death, um, the kind of the death cult, right? You see that um, specifically if you look at the subliminal advertising of the mid-1960s through the late 1970s, early 1980s, almost all of it was sex and death. 
uh, of the um, imprinted magazine, um, oh, you know, yeah. the visual media. I've looked through a lot of that stuff, and man, it's just unbelievable. Remarkable the huh? stuff that they airbrushed in there. Like it was like that. Remarkable. It was incredible. I spent a number of years um, in the early to mid 1980s <laughs> looking through that sort of stuff. That was one of my first introductions. Right after, uh, right around the time that my dad uh, gave me a copy of um, Epperson's, um *The Unseen Hand*. <laughs> so I've been doing this for a long time, but uh, yeah, that was one of the ones. Once you once you became aware of it and could kind of pick it out, man, you could see it. It was everywhere. In fact, almost nothing, <laughs> almost no print ad didn't have it somewhere. It was right? pretty remarkable. Yeah, they still use it too. Uh, Jason, Absolutely. you remember a couple of years ago when uh, the whole Doctor Who thing went down with Jodie Whittaker, and we sat and we looked through those different images, and I oh, pointed out all the different. It was yeah, appalling it? how much they laced in there. And then I remember I was at work at the time. I sent it to you. I said, "Hey, do me a favor and break this apart when you have time. I, I'm I'm really busy at the moment." And you did, and just like you said, there was images everywhere. Then I sent you one from like 15 years earlier, whenever it was. It was like the introduction of David Tennant's Doctor, and you're like, I don't really see anything in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one was not nearly as as much as what was in in that other one. But man, they put the it's it's subliminal subliminal programming, and people don't even realize it's there. I mean, you know, and it, you sent me the, these images and I sat and I picked them apart. I'm like, here's something, here's something. And I would circle it and send it back to you. And you're like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, I remember looking at it at work. And I was like, you're nailing it, dude. You, 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 it's all over the place. By the way, she, she quit now because the show is tanked so bad. <laughs> Gee, what a shocker. <laughs> but, but she was a major contributor to that. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. She, she, uh, you yeah. know, th this, this tells you this mentality I'm always bitching about with this, these, these SJW types, like they think that just because they feel a certain way, they can shove it in everything everywhere and you're automatically going to like it because they're so convinced they're right. Well, she did well, the exact opposite of what you should be yeah. doing. Like, like if you are taking on a controversial role, like you're doing something to completely skew away from what is the established norm, you would at least go out of your way to try and endear yourself to the massive fan base. I mean, we're talking about a program that's been around for decades. They're coming up on their 60th anniversary and the show's in, in absolute, it's absolute gutter trash now. It has been utterly devastated be, just from the past three years. She didn't do any of those oh, yeah. things. All she did was complain about the white male gaze. Like every every talking point of these crazy SJWs, the same things that they've done to crap on Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, it, it, they just keep doing the same things over and over again. Ghostbusters 2016, uh, let's see, the Star Wars sequels, they're all the same garbage. And this is why I keep saying money must not matter anymore because they're taking these properties that are worth zillions of dollars and yep. just taking a big and old dump on them. It. In fact, so um, I just dropped a link in the chat. Um, it's from uh, a channel called The Critical Drinker. Uh, he does about a, a <laughs> he nine is minute, hysterical, uh, by the way. <laughs> not, a nine-minute breakdown of the Thirteenth Doctor, uh, and he he walks through every step of it, and he's he doesn't miss a beat. Um, it's it's actually uh, really funny. And so, if you're not familiar um, with The Critical Drinker. <laughs> He's yeah. funny. He just did one on the Wonder Woman 1984 movie. I was laughing watching him breaking that down. That's funny. All right, so let's jump back into the engineering of consent. The tremendous expansion of communications in the United States has given this nation the world's most penetrating and effective apparatus for the transmission of ideas. Well, you said it, Edward. Every resident is constantly exposed to the impact of our vast network of communications, which reach every corner of the country, no matter how remote or isolated. 
Words hammer continually at the eyes and ears of America. The United States has become a small room in which a single whisper is magnified thousands of times. Knowledge of how to use this enormous amplifying system becomes a matter of primary concern to those who are interested in socially constructive action. Let me reword that in for you. Social engineering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those who want to do the social engineering need to control all the forms of media and communication. Hmm, that's an interesting concept right there, huh? Oh, uh, people asked about the Letterman show. There's a clip out there floating around with Bernays when he was elderly. Yes, he had himself introduced as Dr. Bernays, even though he was not a doctor, as far as I know, uh, unless he got like an honorary one later on. I think it was an honorary degree conferred upon him. But uh, when when, uh, Letterman asked him, he's like, oh, I'm not. But by having you say that, it again, it triggered an emotional response. It put the preconceived preconceived notion that this man holds a doctorate and therefore is intelligent and knows what he's talking about because he's a learned and educated man. And he laughed yeah, about it, it on main network, mainstream network television. Yeah, Laugh in right our eye. faces. Yeah, it pokes you right in the eye. Sure does. You, you, you slap a title like that on somebody and it gives them this air of, uh, you know, being... Uh, legitimacy yeah yeah that air of legitimacy and gives them that uh, uh status as an expert in their field <laughs> you call them a doctor well that's that let's let's uh talk about how that can relate to the thing that's been hitting us the past year now well all the doctors say the science is settled this is this and that's that it's like no it's not no none of these things are settled you're you you're yeah they literally... say listen to the science unless yeah. it's the science you propagandize us because <laughs> if it was complete if something was so settled like the sky is blue no one's gonna disagree with that you wouldn't have doctors and nurses coming out and saying hey wait a second that's not right there, there wouldn't be any yeah and what kills me is a lot of these you know very highly educated doctors will sit there and argue with you that uh, PubMed is not science <laughs> I actually had that discussion with my family doctor a couple of weeks ago. So, but yeah, he, you know, the things I was pointing out to him uh, about different vaccines and stuff like that, that's not science. Uh, dude, it's from PubMed. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, hey, how do you, you can't argue with somebody like that that thinks because they have the, the fancy title that they know everything there is to know about everything. So, uh, you know, it is what it is, but yeah, uh, Science in and of itself, that's not how science works. There's no such thing as settled science. Nope. If, if, <clears throat> if a science is settled, then that's not science. It's not, it's not science. science. It's, settled science is a law. It's pseudoscience. And right? how many of those, well, of those exist? Three? <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't care anymore because we live on theories. Right, exactly. Now, what's interesting is, they, I, I know we've said this many times, the colleges, the schools, all that, the universities, especially when you get into the doctorate range, they're breeding arrogance into these people. And they may not even realize it. It's just, well, I know this because I have a doctorate and you're wrong because you're just a pleb. Well, that's just not the way it works. As we're seeing with this this current situation, that the doctors are wrong. The ones that are coming out and, and pushing all this crap, they're, they're wrong. They're just wrong. There's too many other doctors and nurses who don't have skin in the game are saying, hey, no, this is not correct. These things are not happening. Uh, some, some of it just calling out blatant lies, for instance. And what, what is the current situation targeting? It's targeting fear, a major emotion, something incredibly primal. Once again, they are hitting us all over the world with this one. 
And uh, I'd say that th this, again, could be considered a Bernays tactic. Absolutely it is. Uh, it, once again, you're tying that whole emotional construct to the narrative. And in so doing, uh, you create the situation where you're engineering the outcome that you want for the behavior of the people. So that's the whole thing. They're using this whole fear narrative, this fear-based narrative to get to the ends that they want to get to with sure. the whole situation. And, so, And it's been proven again, over and over again that once you uh, have a buy-in, once there's a certain level of buy-in or people are invested uh, in uh, a narrative or, or whatever, whatever it's a group or a belonging to something, um, that they're going to defend that, right? They have a, a much um, – they fiercely defend ownership. So whether that's um, – um, you know, being hazed into a, uh, let's say, a fraternity, right? Once they go through the hazing process, then um, they're, they're in. And so the bigger the investment, the, the more the cost of entry, uh, the more that they defend it and more value it has to them. Uh, moreover, uh, with when you have something like, um, you know, education, academia, that sort of thing, uh, again, uh, once they accept uh, this and they're uh, given their papers or you know their <laughs> cap and gown. Uh, they they get that uh, Saturn cube on their head. Uh, once they accept that and they're conferred their letters, uh, then uh, they have to defend it, right? And so they uh, have a personal interest in defending it, and they can never um, consider any other um, thing that. Uh, would potentially contravene that because it would strip all their authority. It, it takes away everything that they're invested in. So they just, they simply can't do it. And this is why I say over and over that the higher the education, the deeper the indoctrination. Um, yeah, again, this is not, I don't like blanket statements. It's not true in every 100% of the cases, but as a general rule, that's how people are. Once they've accepted uh, a belief system or a point of view, they tend to defend it. And this is why Crow says over and over that belief is the enemy of knowing, uh, because once you accept something, it's very difficult to let it go. Well, well once, you, once you see him take his real face and his real identity or supposed real face and identity, introduce himself as a thing he's not to use the authoritative title. Wouldn't the correct response to be next time you see an ad that says nine out of ten doctors stay this? Shouldn't an intelligent mind say are nine out of ten doctors even doctors? And by the way, are they doctors of medicine? Because what he's showing you is he'd probably be happy to take a Ph.D. from anywhere um, to get it. And for that matter, if he's willing to show his face and do that, most of these things are just like blurbs with someone's signature. Um, sure. Nine yes. out of ten doctor. Nine out of ten PhDs in gender studies will tell you <laughs> wear a mask. <laughs> well, the point is, is, a little bit of this is on us. You know, how gullible do you got to be? Uh, Eric Delion's asking if we can go over why Bernays had such a great and long-reaching influence, and why people uh, so much took it to heart and used it. Well, because it was effective. He figured out something incredibly basic that a lot of other people hadn't figured out yet. He did the marketing slash propaganda thing very, very early on. We're talking, as I said, I think it was 1919. So think about what society would have been like back then. I mean, we're we're talking about an extremely conservative America yes. compared to the way they are now. And he was figuring out the earliest ways of targeting people uh, to mass market things to people. Yeah, but he was a made man. And he was Agreed. from inside royal circles. So this, to me, it would be no different. How many people out there have heard Jason's opening song? So let me ask you a question. If from the time Jason was old enough to walk, everything was done for him to provide pianos and music lessons and teach him how microphones work and get him into recording studios and get him to go out and play live, could Jason have been as famous as Jimi Hendrix or anyone else? Yeah, he could have, because that's the difference. 
And so what you're looking at in Bernays is he's into the royal circle. I mean, can you have a better lineage than being related to Sigmund Freud? Think about what I'm saying here. If you look at all the top time books in a in a EDU settings, Freud's got to have many of them in particular yep. fields, right? Yep. So I'm just saying, um, it's it's a bit like being in the mob and being a made person. You have I'm a leg up that, yeah, no one day, else has long. that advantage. Yeah, I'm with you all day long with that crow. In fact, um, what it seems to me is that there's research prior to his uh, that would indicate, again, they already knew this stuff. It just kind of got handed to him uh, to be the guy, the um, flag boy, if you will, uh, to wave in the flag and sort of it kind of went through him. Was he bright? Absolutely. Did he have a good sense of it? Sure. Uh, but he, as Crow said, he was uh, definitely on the inside. Everything was handed to him. All the research, everything that they already knew was given to him. He's not the only one doing it, but he's the guy sort of taking credit for it and being the upfront guy. He's the I'll, the actor, if you will. I'll um, take it a step further, Baldini. I'll take it a step further. My suspicion is that he was handed the tools to go do what he did. In other words, yeah. supposedly these two guys came along, figured out how to hack the human mind and all these things that supposedly were not known previous. And he got the first editions on all Absolutely. that stuff. Absolutely. Because what we're, what we're talking about, if you want to put it in plain language, is how do we make an offer and then ensure 80% of people accept the offer? That's basically go. what's going on here. Okay, and I'll take it even a step further, which is that the same group of people, um, closely related to Tavistock, um, handed, gave basically that same information uh, to both Orwell and Huxley and said, give us yeah. your, draw us your map of what this looks like when we do this. And each gave their own view of it. And you can tell from the letters between them, um, that, you know, very clearly that this is what's going on, that they both were uh, given an assignment to to write the, their view of what that would look like. And Huxley preferred his, which was that people love their servitude rather than um, Orwell's boot on the neck, right? So, uh, but we certainly see both of those, and people say, "Oh, they were so prescient, right?" I mean, you can't, to me, you can't look at that and not see very clearly that that is—it's uh, a recipe. It's, it's well, a script. There's another part of this that I don't think many people consider. Um, think about the people who have done the dystopian future and become famous for writing about it. Are those people aware of a cycle of time that we are not? I mean, we all know that in the course of a year, we're going to be warm and happy and have fruit, fresh fruit. But guess what? Winter's coming, right? So in the small cycle, we know it goes up and down. When you blow it out, um, we're all pretty sure. We, we did an episode on flamenco, which will air when we get space to air it. But the idea there is is that all the history we're aware of, you know, is maybe from it's the 1100. Yeah, 1100 forwards um, kind of idea. So my point would be, um, is it? Is something as simple as these dudes just have a better view of real history than we ever have? Uh, you got to consider it. That's in other words, part of it. Is, is there always going to be the chance for a dystopian outcome for some period of time? Well, it also, seems like that's what their intention is, right? If that's the script, if that's what they're pushing for, uh, you know, do a variety of different ways uh, to get there. So where's <laughs> you know, we always exactly had where's we always had example? parallel development paths going. Where, where's your example, though? Every time you set out to do a thing on that scale, like if you're going to build a bridge, you build a model of the bridge. There's your example, right? So where's the example of the dystopian future they're pushing for here? It must exist, right? you got to have a blueprint. Well, it may have existed, and they destroyed it. And <laughs> I mean, from, from the, uh, the all indications, is that has happened several times. 
that I mean, that seems to be the the implicate, you know, implicature here. Um, who knows? All right, this is the one thing that I think we're all looking at is going. What happened in our ancient past? Because we know that they're lying to us. Well, you know, what we we don't know for sure what happened. What we know for sure is that what they're telling us isn't true, as with most most things, right? So they're hiding everything. So yeah, this is the, these are the fascinating things uh, is to try to try to figure out and put these things together. I, I don't know. Well, Here's another example of why I went down that road. Like, I hadn't seen The Dark Crystal in forever. I saw it on a TV listing, so I recorded about 20 minutes of it. Um, I think it was probably the 80s the last time I saw any of The Dark Crystal. But in The Dark Crystal, the whole premise is is evil's taking over, and there's these good guys and all this, but it's all contingent on, wait for it, a great conjunction. Yep. Right? And that shows up again in the new new, um, reboot of it, which is awesome, too, if you're looking at it from a truth perspective. There's so many tells in that. So this Hmm. smacks of an archetype, and an archetype requires an actual history. So I'm just pointing out... Um, that it seems like there may be examples of this that none of us are aware of. And it, it seems unlikely to me that they just invented we're going to make up this hell society. You guys write some books on it. And yeah, that, that looks good. This is what we'll go for. Agreed. I'm, di- yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the archetype is definitely there, and uh, the archetype gets carried forward through time. But we may not know the actual narrative or story of what really happened in our past that uh, presents that archetype to us, but that, that moves forward through the ages. Um, and we can subliminally or, you know, subconsciously see the archetype and have a basic understanding of what it means, but not really know the source of where the archetype came from or, or why exactly the archetype means what it does to us. But we do recognize it. I mean, that's that's one of the inherent uh, things in the human psyche. And these people understood that very well. And a lot of this gets traced back, once again, to the ancient mystery schools. They understood the way the psyche works and, and how human psychology works. And exactly. I would, I would uh, venture to guess that uh, Bernays, as well as, well, we know for sure that uh, Jung uh, actually looked at things from an alchemical perspective or from, you know, these ancient science perspectives, uh, I would wager that uh, Bernays probably knew a little something about that too, especially as far as the idea of archetypes and archetypal things, because you can see uh, he utilized just the archetype of the egg in several ways, uh, like we had discussed earlier. Uh, He's the guy that pretty much invented the concept of breakfast. So there's your eggs right there. Uh, and also put the egg in the cake batter, like Jason was alluding to earlier, it invokes this archetypal idea, and you saw it worked. Because up until that point, people weren't buying that cake mix. But once uh, he added to the instructions to add an egg to it, well, something very primal showed in people. This is an archetypal idea. So he understood these ideas and utilized them and was a master at it. All right, we have a question here, Crow, that uh, I would like to address before we jump back to the article here. Crow and Jason should have multiple religious leaders talk about what true health is. I guarantee the Orthodox Christian and Hindu beliefs are far from Western culture. Well, anyone with any common sense is going to be far from Western culture at this point because we really don't, <laughs> we really don't have any, any real health care, right? We have drugs. We have drug pushers, yep. um, you know, mm-hmm. and... and to be Fake fair, food. the surgery and modern medicine, some of it's pretty astounding what they can pull off. But to be equally fair, a lot of that surgery is unneeded. So I, I would just say anything that's like old world uh, or what I consider old world, so pretty much coming from some other part of the world in North America, um, 
those traditions are always going to hold values that go back to nature at some point. Well, as far as the Hindus, uh, I'm actually quite fond of Indian food, and I can only imagine what the real stuff would be like. They, they use a lot of natural ingredients that are actually very healthy for you. Turmeric being one of them, because it's in there's, almost everything of theirs. There, there's whole styles. Way. Yeah, for you, it would be perfect, Jason. There's whole styles that are based on complete veganism, and it's good food. It's not like we would think of veganism here um, either. But if you go to places like I spent time in South Korea, uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, actually, I went back as a roadie to South Korea, and their food is color-coded. So you know that if you have all the colors on offer, that you've had a complete healthy meal. Um, most food around the world is far from what we call food. We, we just did. We just recorded with Athens. I was just going to bring that up um, this yep. morning. And and the first thing I said to him, he's been stuck in Portugal since Covidius. Stuck. It's so up. terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, one thing is the food's a lot better. And he just launched into it. He said, yeah, it's great. As a matter of fact, he said he wouldn't mind staying there. Um, they won't re-up his visa till all this nonsense passes. Point is, is he's all about the healthy, locally made, non-GMO, you know, real food, basically. Right. And I'm not a vegan, by the way. I know people get touchy about that one. I, I, I'm primarily vegetarian, kind of a more would be fair to say pescatarian because I do like to get some some protein in there and uh, fish oil. All that's very good for you. But uh, yeah, I totally respect the concept if it's if it's done right. I just don't like how people get, get a little <laughs> crazy about well, it sometimes. Well, if they, if, they, if they do, then just ask them why aren't they practicing like the Janes. You didn't pick that apple, did you? Because if you did, you killed it. The Janes wait for the apple to fall on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just like everything, as I always say, everything in moderation. Don't take things too far. Don't take anything too far. Uh, even drinking coffee could take it a little too far. I feel like my soul is burning. What? <laughs> yeah, a lot of coffee is a weird anymore. thing, man. It's one of those things that shows up in the news almost annually. It's, it'll be good for you, then it'll be horrible for you. I noticed that. Uh, but yep. I saw, I saw a comment. Um, someone was asking about one of our past episodes where you and I talked about the Red Cross, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't think it was we're the blood talking episode. about the medical. I, yeah, I think it's the no, I think it's the Rosicrucian is what he's asking. Uh, it could be the Red Cross, but that would be self-evident if it was the medical Red Cross. Um, he's asking what the Red Cross is. Pretty sure we're talking about Rosicrucian, the Rosie Cross, secret society. Uh, well, yeah, that is it. That is definitely a secret society. Now, the Red Cross, uh, as we figured out, is is just a huge uh, money making scam with the whole blood the thing. Yeah, the medical Ma- massive, yeah. All right, they do blood. <laughs> and you'll see them everywhere too but god forbid some kind of event goes down they're going to be there begging for your blood even if it has nothing to do with anything they're, like that they're going to be there and they're going to sell it i saw the damnedest commercial on tv here in rhode island the other day uh, now they're after plasma and there were three big corporations underwriting the ads first time i've ever seen it hmm. now whatever it has to do with the, the current vaccine push it's- got to be something you know because if you give blood they could get the plasma right that's just a centrifuge operation i think Hmm. okay there are two main divisions of this communication system which maintain social cohesion on the first level there are the commercial media almost 1800 daily newspapers in the united states have a combined circulation of around 44 million there are approximately 10,000 weekly newspapers and almost 6,000 magazines by the way let me let me stress that this is 1947 i don't know what, what numbers are like these days approximately 2,000 radio stations of various types broadcast to the nation's 60 million receiving sets approximately 16,500 motion picture houses have a capacity of almost 10,500,000 
a deluge of books and pamphlets are published annually. The country is blanketed with billboards, handbills, throwaways, and direct mail advertising. And all this stuff is pretty much true in 2021. Roundtables, panels, and forums, classrooms, and legislative assemblies, and pu public platforms, any and all media, day after day, spread the word. Someone's word. On the second level, there are the specialized media owned and operated by the many organized groups in this country. Almost all such groups, and many of their subdivisions, have their own communications systems. They disseminate ideas not only by means of the formal written word in labor papers, house organs, special bulletins, and the like, but also through lectures, meetings, discussions, and rank-and-file conversations. And oh, Edward, if you had lived long enough to see the freaking internet, old boy... Good thing he yeah, didn't. Can you imagine? It is a good thing he didn't. He'd have uh, been on imagine? the Google board of directors. <laughs> Probably. All right, so here's how you don't be evil. That's a good slogan, by the way. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, don't be evil. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, anybody got any commentary? Or shall I continue? Well, just imagine the numbers today. The, you know, Bernays is looking at this, the reach that these types of commercial media had back then. And you're talking, this was the 1940s. Uh, the, the reach and the scope of the reach anymore with all the forms of media we have is like infinitely beyond that. Uh, so could you imagine if you just utilize the principles that he talked about here with all of this media? And that's exactly what uh, the social controllers do. They utilize all the different forms of media that they have, the social media, the television, the, uh, you know, radio. I mean, he talked briefly about radio there because that was pretty much the big thing at the time. And, you know, newspapers, newspapers are kind of a dead issue now in this country. But uh, I guess they still have enough circulation and online circulation that they still. Yeah. The, one, the ones who did a, it early. Rather kinda... large audience. They, they kind of save yeah. themselves, the ones who figured it out early, because I don't, I don't think a lot of people, I mean, yeah, people still buy them, but I, I don't think mass paper circulation is still a big thing nowadays. Yeah, and you know, the major, the major ones still act like they're big shit. Like, oh, I'm from the Washington <laughs> Post. Uh, my words have meaning. It's like, Times. no, you're full of shit, and we know it. <laughs> we know what Operation Mockingbird is. We know the CIA has been putting people in your organizations for decades. So um, piss off. <laughs> yeah, not just the newspapers, though, the TV and it, just about everything. So, you know, yeah, all the know, ones that matter, you know, even geographic. That's a whole story we could cover um, the, the the level of retardation that was introduced into National Geographic is just so evident. In maybe the late 90s, it becomes so evident. They even changed the format. But you come to find out who owns all that stuff. Um, it's like that, what's that TV channel they have in Rhode Island? I can't think of it. The, uh, what's the name of the Smithsonian channel? You know who the board of directors guy is for the Smithsonian? It's the vice president of the United States. Um, it's on the, so, you know, that's, that's, it's basically no different than geographic. We just never knew it all those years. We thought that they were up to something useful. No, not something <laughs> useful. They would never hide anything Oops. about our real history. No. Oh, and a little secret about Rhode Island, too, guys. It's not really an island. <laughs> is, is, it, is it a road? I can't believe anything. Yeah, they, you guys are killing me. You guys are they killing don't know how to me. spell road, either. It's not a road <laughs> or an island? You mean this is a there's total the, there's lie? No road, there's no island. It's not a spinning space rock. It's not a spinning space rock. 
Come, what? I mean, did, come on. Just at least tell me we came from monkeys. <laughs> Let's ask Hanuman. Hanuman, tell us about where we came from. Damn it. Ro- Rose can drop the episode if they don't know what I'm talking about. I wanted to come from some sea slime. Damn it. I want to. I want to come from something cooler than that. We're working our way back to that in reverse. I think Baldini, we're we're headed back to slime right now, so we're devolving. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <sighs> oh, sadly true. Sadly yeah. true. Get a shot today. You can be <laughs> in a petri dish next week. Be the envy of uh, other amoebas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I want to be uh, a Euglena. I have a flagellum. Well, you know, that would work well with the SJW propaganda <laughs> because away, they want man. everybody to be genderless and, and have no identity of My their own. My flagellum is bigger than yours. <laughs> uh, it's been a long day, man. I can tell. I think Baldini found all the leftover <laughs> yeah, He's getting into that leftover he's, cocaine. He's, uh, uh, yeah. he's eating the feathers over there, I think. <laughs> I figured it would all be gone after all those weeks. Well, it is a new year, you know. <laughs> new year, new bag. That's right. Oh, coffee talk. Uh, the new deal was neither new nor a deal. Discuss. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, leadership through communication. This web of communications, sometimes duplicating, crisscrossing, and overlapping, is a condition of fact, not theory. We must recognize the significance of modern communications not only as a highly organized mechanical web, ooh, interesting choice of words, but as a potent force for social good or possible evil. We can determine whether this network shall be employed to its greatest extent for sound social ends. Did you want to say something? No, just evil. Evil. <laughs> Maybe possibly evil. Feeling okay. cute. Might be evil later. I don't know. Oh, sure. Chop a little more quietly over there, Baldi. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what? <the> mirror squeaking. <laughs> what? <clears throat> Got a gobber working over here. No, I was kidding. <laughs> Somebody get him another pot. Oh, dear. All oh, right. Oh, Jason, save us. Let's just talk about mastering techniques, okay? Whoa! (laughs) Oh, my. Oh, my. For only by mastering the techniques of communication can leadership be exercised fruitfully in the vast complex that is modern democracy in the United States. In an earlier age, in a society that was small geographically and with a more homogeneous population, a leader was usually known to his followers personally. There is a visual relationship between them. Communication was accomplished principally by personal announcement to an audience or through a relatively primitive printing press. Books, pamphlets, and newspapers reached a very small, literate segment of the public. We are tired of hearing repeated the threadbare cliché, the world has grown smaller, but this so-called truism is not actually true by any means. The world has grown both smaller and very much larger. Its physical frontiers have been expanded. Today's leaders have become more remote physically from the public. Yet at the same time, the public has much greater familiarity with these leaders through the system of modern communications. Leaders are just as potent today as ever. Now, this was written in 1947, so something like FDR's fireside chats would be a fantastic example of the early utilization of new technology at the time to really drive a message home. But, but he's not even telling the truth in this. He, they, they don't have any more familiarity than they ever did. They have an impression. That's what they have. They have, they have whatever it is they want to show. Whatever, right. whatever so image has, they're trying to show, whatever mask, if you will, they're putting on for all to see is just being shown illusion. to more people. Sure. It's the illusion. The facade. 
Yep. Well, he's Indeed. not. See, that's what I'm saying. He's not couching it as an illusion. He's couching it as, oh, look, people get to know more now. <laughs> well, he doesn't give away all his secrets. You got to read his books for that. I thought that's what we were doing here. <laughs> we didn't read all of them, though. I think the warnings for the spell come after the spell. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. In turn, by use of this system, which has constantly expanded as a result of technological improvement, leaders have been able to overcome the problems of geographical distance and social stratification to reach their publics. Underlying much of this expansion, and largely the reason for its existence in its present form, has been widespread and enormously rapid diffusion of literacy. Leaders may be the spokesmen for many different points of view. They may direct the activities of major organized groups, such as industry, labor, or units of government. They may compete with one another in battles for public goodwill. Or they may, representing divisions within the larger units, compete among themselves. Such leaders, with the aid of technicians in the field who have specialized in utilizing the channels of communication, have been able to accomplish purposefully and scientifically what we have termed the engineering of consent. And once there again, he's not really telling the truth because he knows damned well that a lot of this stuff is just like WWF wrestling. It's all scripted and fake. Ta-da! And there's the big tell right there. That's the big secret. Scripted. It's all scripted. It's all fake. It, the whole world is a stage. And we're just actors on it. And that's the absolute truth. And they've actually used this concept uh, for purposes of social engineering or the engineering of consent and we see it happening today don't we i don't know how popular my character's been but i feel like i'm missing some royalties <laughs> <laughs> the engineering approach this phrase quite simply means the use of an engineering approach that is action based only on thorough knowledge of the situation and on the application of scientific principles and tried practices <clears throat> Excuse me. To the task of getting people to support ideas and programs. Any this would person. Be cybernetics. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is the right time for it. 1947? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Any person or organization depends ultimately on public approval and is therefore faced with the problem of engineering the public's consent to a program or goal. You got very good at that, didn't you, Mr. Bernays? We expect our elected government officials to try to engineer our consent through the network of communications open to them for the measures that they propose. We reject government authoritarianism or regimentation, but we are willing to take actions suggested to us by the written or spoken word. The engineering of consent is the very essence of the democratic process, the freedom to persuade and suggest, the freedoms of speech, press, petition, and assembly, the freedoms which make the engineering of consent possible, are among the most cherished guarantees of the Constitution of the United States. The engineering. Okay, I'm going to call a timeout right there. <laughs> there's a mouthful. Okay, well, let's let's go for it. I'm calling a timeout right there. We reject government authoritarianism or regimentation, but we're willing to take you know action suggested to us by the written or spoken word from them. Just convince <laughs> so, me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sell it. me on it. Sell, sell right. me on it. Make me sell an offer me I can't the... refuse. Tell me all the good points to your plan, and don't yeah. tell me any of the bad points. All the free stuff you're going to give me. Yep, her. You can't come in Make here me without all a those mask. Political promises. Yep, exactly. So yeah, just tell tell me what you're going to do, and I'll I'll say yes. 
even though I don't really say yes, but by not saying no or saying nothing at all, you take that as yes. Um, but he, he very clearly says we expect our elected officials to do this, right? That, that's exactly <laughs> what he's saying right there. We expect them to come forward and tell us what they want to do and try to convince us that what they're doing is the right thing. But this this isn't even true, though. He's trying to claim that the most basic freedoms that we cherish the most in this document are what make the, uh, the the consent possible, the engineered consent possible, but it's not true. Look where we are now. Look what's going on in Washington, D.C. Of course tonight. it's not true. It's all, it's he's all pitching this up. idea. He's pitching, yeah. he's pitching this idea. It's like uh, he's waving the flag and saying that uh, mind control is patriotic. <laughs> Pretty I mean, much. That, that's what he's selling here, right, is that it, it's American. To, to uh, convince the masses America. to buy your product or uh, to, to uh, take your point of view. That's that's the American way, right? So that's what – he's waving the flag and, and calling on patriotism here. Remember, this is right after the Second World War. And so he's saying, yes, this is a very foundation upon which this country is founded is our ability to um, sell cigarettes <laughs> and fried chicken, right? This is what this country is founded on, the ability to lie to you if necessary, right? Trick you. It's okay if it's a, if it's a shell game uh, so long as you consent to it, right? We can't step on your neck. I mean we will if we have to, but, but we will try not to. But so long as you say yes to whatever, then – <laughs> That's the American way. Uh, the again, he four. changed that moral compass uh, to point toward money. The force has a very powerful effect on the on the mind. On on the weak minded. On the yes. weak minded. Yes. Yes. <laughs> These are not the ads you're looking for. These are not the Fords you're looking for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the engineering of consent should be based theoretically and practically on the complete understanding of those whom it attempts to win over. But it is sometimes impossible to reach joint decisions based on an understanding of facts by all the people. The average American adult has only six years of schooling behind him. With pressing crises and decisions to be faced, a leader frequently cannot wait for the people to arrive at even general understanding. Ooh, oh, my, 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 my. Let wow. me translate that for you. <laughs> wow. All you dummies out there, we, wow. we, we expect our, our government to do all the things that you don't know to do. So, <laughs> man, that is a very bold statement. Condescending there, much? Yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> in certain cases, Democratic leaders must play their part in leading the public through the engineering of consent to socially constructive goals and values. This role naturally imposes upon them the obligation to use the educational processes as well as other available techniques to bring about as complete an understanding as possible. Under no circumstances should the engineering of consent supersede or displace the functions of the educational system, either formal or informal, in bringing about understanding by the people as a basis for their action. The engineering of consent often does supplement the educational process. If higher general educational standards were to prevail in this country and the general level of public knowledge and understanding were raised as a result, this approach would still retain its value. Even a, in a society of a perfectionist educational wow. standard, equal progress would not be achieved in every field. There would always be time lags, blind spots, and points of weakness, and the engineering of consent would still be essential. The engineering of consent will always be needed as an adjunct to or a partner of the educational process. This, again, wow. sounds like George Carlin's 
it's a big club, folks, and you ain't in it. You're not in it. Yep. You guys, uh, it's it's in our best interest. Let's let's just uh, summarize this. It's in our best interest to keep educational quality low, and it makes uh, engineering consent easier. If they do happen to get smarter, uh, we're going to still have to use it. Uh, we just have to incorporate uh, the same uh, aspects into the educational process so that they're used to the same techniques by the time uh, we bring it to them in the media. <laughs> <laughs> Just get them used to it. Just get them used to the processes early on. That's we're going to use the educational system uh, as their early set of indoctrinations. Wow. Man, Nazi. this is fucked up. <laughs> this is fucked up. Whoa. <sighs> importance uh. of engineering consent. Today, it is impossible to overestimate the importance of engineering consent. It affects almost every aspect of our daily lives. When used for social purposes, it is among our most valuable contributions to the efficient functioning of modern society. The techniques can be subverted. Demagogues can utilize the techniques for anti-democratic purposes with as much success as can those who employ them for socially desirable ends. The responsible leader to accomplish social objectives must therefore be constantly aware of the possibilities of subversion. He must apply his energies to mastering the operational know-how of consent engineering and to outmaneuvering his opponents in the public interest. It is clear that a leader in a, in a democracy need not always possess the personal qualities of a Daniel Webster or a Henry Clay. He need not be visible or even audible to his audiences. He may lead indirectly, simply, simply by <clears throat> effectively using today's means of making contact with the eyes and ears of those audiences. Even the direct, or what might be called the old-fashioned method of speaking to an audience is, for the most part, once removed. For usually public speech is transmitted, mechanically, through the mass media of radio, motion pictures, and television, and of course now the internet. During World War I, the famous Committee on Public Information, organized by George Creel, dramatized in the public's consciousness the effectiveness of the War of Words. The committee helped to build the morale of our own people, to win over the neutrals, and to, and to disrupt the enemy. It helped to win that war. By the way, Edward Bernays was part of that whole situation very early on in his life. But by comparison with the enormous scope of word warfare in World War II, the Committee on Public Information used primitive tools to do an important job. The Office of War Information alone probably broadcast more words over its shortwave facilities during the war than were written by all of George Creel's staff. As this approach came to be recognized as the key factor in influencing public thought, thousands of experts in many related fields came to the fore, such specialists as editors, publishers, advertising men, heads of pressure groups and political parties, educators, and publicists. During World War I and the immediate post-war years, a new profession developed in response to the demand for trained, skilled specialists to advise others on the technique of engineering public consent, a profession providing counsel on public relations. Which what? Was what was that? Him. What was that last bit? A profession uh, providing counsel, counsel on, on public, public relations. relations. <laughs> uh, public, mm, foreign relations. Counsel on foreign <laughs> relations. Advising others on the technique of engineering. Hmm. The engineering of consent, yes. And hmm. Very important. They found this out in wartime that they hmm. could, you know, very severely influence public thought over the airwaves, over the radio. Hmm. So hmm. They, could, they could use words and rhetoric to influence the behavior of the public at large through this mass media outlet that now was that, uh, the radio. 
now that Crow has brought it up, now I'm going to, I feel like, uh, sounds like a Skeksis. Yeah, this is, um, man, these, uh, pretty telling here, but <laughs> his condescending attitude. Damn. Well, you can only well, he imagine who he's club. been around by 1947, considering he started in 1919. Th think about where Bernays, like what boardrooms Bernays may have been in, what parties he had attended. Just think about all this crap that oh, yeah. must have gone on in his life in the nearly 30 years at this point of his Council on Public Relations. Yeah. So yeah he, well, just... he begins the very next thing he says is, well, I define this profession in my book. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but uh, yeah, that that last line there—a profession providing counsel on foreign relations. I mean, public, public relations. relations. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, basically, he tells you up here in the uh, the one sentence up here. It says, "It is clear that a leader in a democracy need not always possess the personal qualities of a Daniel Webster or a Henry Clay." What he's saying there is they don't necessarily have to be smart or well spoken. It's just a matter of what kind of a, a marketing campaign we could put on them. Um, sure. You know, you could, yeah, yeah, you could prop up any old turd like Joe Biden and say, "Here we go," you know, yep, just outmaneuver <laughs> out the competition. Yep, outmaneuver yep. the competition. We'll put our boy up there, and we'll just, you know, we'll we'll manufacture the consent of the people uh, through our campaign. Well, uh, and this here's a great here's a great example of of manufacturing consent in the early primaries. And again, this is not between parties. This is within one party, the Democratic Party. In the early primaries, Biden couldn't get more than five percent, and Harris didn't even get three tenths of one percent. They were at the bottom. They were entirely at the bottom of the heap, and uh, and then they were uh, put up to be the choices, right? So these are the choices that they give. So that talk about manufacturing consent. Oh, you don't like those people? Well, that's the only ones you get. Then <laughs> we love those guys. <laughs> what can they do? Well, they're not it Trump. Works. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, see, and that was the entire marketing strategy behind it, wasn't it? Yep, so. exactly. And there I, you go. I, I might be I might be the sniffer, but <laughs> old sniffer. Well, here's how well this stuff works. There are millions of Americans who willingly are begging for a senile right known now. child molester to be the head of what's supposed to be the free nation of the world, the head of the- Okay, well, there's there's half of them. The other half are begging for martial law to prevent that. <laughs> so who's right here? This is, uh, this is where we got, this is how we start 2021. Blackjack. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. All right. Sounds so, like somebody's yeah, winning and it's not us. <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride. I mean, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, well, you know who always wins in blackjack? The, the house? house always wins. Right. They always have the edge. But, uh, yeah, you know, people keep saying, is it going to be doom and gloom? And my wife, we're talking, my wife and I were talking about this today. And I said, you know, this is not going away. This is never, never going to end. Uh, and she's come to that awareness as well that um, this this whole thing is uh, they've gone from pandemic to endemic. And they're telling us that this is just um, the beginning and it's it's not going away. And, of course, we, we, we all understood this in this community from the outset. Um, but then people say, when you talk about this, they go, oh, such gloom and doom. I'm like, well, it depends on the way you're looking at it. It depends on what your expectations are, I guess. <laughs> if your expectations are to get the world back that you had, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> right? But if you if your expectations are to come up with something entirely new, we've got an opportunity for that. Right? So uh, we can use their, um, their terms, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste, I guess. <laughs> Old Rahm Emanuel. 
<sighs> in a two-two. If you're interested in protecting your right to color TV, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> 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 and that booty juice, right? Give, give me some. And of that. your right to sing the blues. Uh, there you go. Uh, <clears throat> give, give me some of that Brondo. <laughs> it's got what plants crave. That's right. The professional viewpoint. In 1923, I defined this profession in my book, Crystallizing Public Opinion, and in the same year at New York University, gave the first course on the subject. In the almost quarter century that has elapsed since then, the profession has become a recognized one in this country and has spread to other democratic countries where free communication and competition of ideas in the marketplace are permitted. The profession has its literature, its training courses, an increasing number of practitioners, and a growing recognition of social responsibility. In the United States, the profession deals specifically with the problems of relationship between a group and its public. Its chief function is to analyze objectively and realistically the position of its client vis-a-vis a public and to advise as to the necessary corrections in its client's attitudes toward and approaches to that public. It is thus an instrument for achieving adjustment if any maladjustment in relationships exists. It must be remembered, of course, that goodwill, the basis of lasting adjustment, can be preserved in the long run only by those whose actions warrant it. Uh (coughs) But this does not prevent those who do not deserve goodwill from winning it and holding on to it long enough to do a lot of damage. Well, why don't you say that three more times, Eddie? The Public Relations Council has a professional responsibility to push only those ideas he can respect and not to promote (laughs) causes or accept assignments for clients he considers antisocial. Bullshit! You put fluoride in the water! Bullshit! He didn't say that we're actually good for the public. He said that he could respect. (laughs) (laughs) He personally respects that. Crow, we need to take a moment here and address this question from Julian. Uh... Can we make lapel pins for the Crow Triple Seven shop? Uh, as far as I know, Teespring doesn't have them, and I know I don't know if this is the same person who had emailed us earlier about it. Uh, we don't have the time or the capability to make things uh, individually and package them and send send it out. I mean, it's it's Crow and myself making the content, and Rose helping us with the other side of it, and that's it. That, that's that's why we're using Teespring to make merch in the first place, and that's that's pretty much it. Crow, you got anything you want to add to that? Uh, I think Crow stepped away for a moment. Crow stepped away for a moment. Okay. Well, I hope hopefully that that makes sense. I, I would love to offer tons of stuff. Uh, eventually, we'll get around to releasing Shoot the Moon when people don't seem to need it on Vimeo anymore. Um, the the problem is if I release that on hard hard copy, I've given the film away because, uh, well, that's just the way things are. Once once you start doing things like that. So anyway, we'll keep on going unless you guys got some other commentary. Oh, where to begin with the commentary? There's just so much. <laughs> I know Wayne has been over there just chomping at the bit. Oh, there's there's just so much in here. Like it's yeah. unbelievable. Um, he talking about he's talking about things like uh, you know growing recognition of social responsibility. Yeah, where where is that, Bernays? Where where's the social responsibility? Uh, who's whose re- social responsibility are you talking about? Like who are they responsible for? If you're talking about people being responsible to the public at large, that doesn't happen. Now about being responsible to maybe the uh, board of directors or whatever that they're working for or you know their stockholders. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely what happens. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that the engineering of consent here is a good thing. Um, it's been used and misused in a lot of ways uh, against society at large. So 
Um, you know, there's just so many things that this guy brought into the public realm that should honestly not really be there if we had can any you, ethical standards. Anymore. Can you offer me any example of it being used in a positive way? Mm. No, from, not from, really. From, from our perspective. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, the, the standard normie would say, oh, well, it, it rallied Americans uh, to, let's say, um, you know, to defeat the Nazis in World War II uh, or, you know, to buy war bonds or whatever. But again, uh, from our perspective, that wasn't necessarily a, a, a good outcome. So let's look and say, it, 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 can any, uh, can we think of any public relations uh, campaign uh, that actually did good other than what their PR spin on it is? Right. And they say, oh, we contributed to the Susan G. Coleman Foundation. OK, well, race for the cure. Have you found that cure for cancer yet? No. Right. So um, despite, oh, by the way, we know what it is, but you're just not interested in it. Right. So <laughs> the, despite um, what they, the spins that they put on it or, you know, all the money they say they've raised, if there's no outcome to it. Right. Then they don't have anything to stand on. So I'd be interested if anybody has anything that they can offer in terms of a public relations campaign that actually did uh, good. Uh, you know, again, beyond oh. those things like get vaccinated, right? That sort of stuff. Because <laughs> right. they'll go, oh, that was a great outcome. But no, not not from uh, not from my perspective. So I'd be interested in hearing anybody's uh, ideas on that. Well, here's my view on the whole concept of, uh, you know, this kind of a thing. Uh, anything that's good doesn't need a public relations kind of thing going on. You don't need to put a PR spin on something that's good. You don't need public relations. If something's inherently good, it does not need public relations. Same with fact so, checkers, right? You don't right. you don't need a bodyguard uh, to, to. Truth needs no no bodyguard of lies, uh, and you don't have to uh, push down uh, anything that's misinformation because the truth stands on its own two legs. The only time the only thing that does uh, need that kind of protection is, of course, lies and deception. So uh, fact checkers wouldn't be necessary right. if the story they were telling was true. Same inherent thing. That's a form of public relations, too. Think about it that. The, the fact checkers, that, that's a form of public relations. See, that's your platforms like Facebook or something or, or that kind can, of can thing. We just be all, can we just be transparent here and say, really, public relations, the, the mind control, right? Yep, it's it's manipulation is what it is. If you were in a relationship with somebody who practiced these, if these things on you effectively over and over, that would be a textbook you know, definition uh, of a manipulative relationship and harmful and abusive, go. right? It would be an abusive relationship uh, because they would be constantly manipulating you to do something, you know, against your will, but you chose to, you said, you know, you said yes to it, uh, despite the fact that it's not good for you, right? So they're certainly not looking out for your best interest. And this is, um, this is why I asked the question, is there any of these public relations campaigns or um, manufacturing of consent that actually serve the public interest in any way. And I well, can't, I can't say, think you of can say that about all marketing at this point. <laughs> yes. Yep. It, it's all based on dishonor and it's all based on manipulating. It's it's all geared to get a human to take an action they would not have otherwise otherwise taken. taken. That's correct. Right. Nine out of ten doctors smoke Lucky Strikes. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, smoother I mean, on your throat. Could, It'll, it's good for we, you. Yeah, you can go back and actually find ads that say just that. These doctors prefer yeah, these cigarettes because they taste better. And that's oh, they're smoother smoke. and yeah, yeah, they taste good. Yeah. Did you know that the uh, the Tobacco Council back in the 1950s actually had the audacity to publish a, a peer-reviewed scientific paper that shows that smoking actually 
uh, could help you in the situation of fending off radiation poisoning. So Ooh, that well, that nice. that's one good positive effect of smoking on your lungs. Yeah, and I read a paper from radiation. I read a paper from 1953 that encouraged smoking for pregnant mothers. Oh, uh, to to help them um, manage their um, appetite, right, and um, get their energy levels. Uh, it could be used in a variety of different ways. So it was encouraged for pregnant mothers to to have a couple of puffs uh, every couple of hours. Yeah, right? and just to, just to put a fine point on it, that was settled science too, wasn't it? Settled Absolutely. science by doctors with doctorates. Oh my yes, God! Yes. Think about this. In peer reviewed scientific journals. And too. for forty years, they poo pooed that there was uh, anybody who uh, dared imply any link. Uh, between uh, smoking and any sort of respiratory uh, or heart disease. No, it took, they, it took until the 1960s. They even played that out in the TV show Mad Men because the main character yeah, mouthed no, off about it. For, for, for about four decades, right, is from the time it was first suggested. Um, so, yes, it was in uh, the mid late 1920s, early 1930s, I think, would be, it was suggested that there would, might be a connection um, to um, some lung disease. And, uh, now, course, now. Correlation does not equal causation. You know. That's right. Exactly. That's what we were told consistently. There's no no proven link uh, between smoking, and uh, they poo-pooed that idea consistently. So is exactly Billing Tano. Is it science if it's not settled? I mean, <laughs> well, there is no such thing really as settled science mm-hmm. because science is a process, right? So it's a uh, science really is just knowledge. It's a, it's a body of knowledge. It's a grouping of knowledge, and it's a process by which we uh, can determine and uh, confirm the cause and effect relationship between things. And um, natural laws are simply observations that we make that falls outside um, the scientific process because we can't determine cause, but we can say that we can observe it and every time it occurs um, so that there is a law like the second law of thermodynamics, right? It observes – we observe it to happen every single time under every circumstance. So uh, we can say that that is a natural law. We don't know what causes it, but we can quantify it. So basically that's the <laughs> that's the difference. But if you say it's settled science, that implies that uh, there's no more research to be done and we absolutely know the cause and effect relationship for all those things. And that's absolute poppycock. <laughs> So there's that. Planning a campaign. Just as the civil engineer must analyze every element of the situation before he builds a bridge, so the engineer of consent, in order to achieve a worthwhile social objective, must operate from a foundation of soundly planned action. Let us assume that he is engaged in a specific task. His plans must be based on four prerequisites. 1. Calculation of resources, both human and physical, for example, the manpower, the money, and the time available for the purpose. 2. As thorough knowledge of the subject as possible. 3. Determination of objectives. I just lost my place. Subject to possible change after research, specifically what is to be accomplished, with whom and through whom. 4. Research of the public to learn why and how it acts both individually and as a group. And that is that is the one thing that Bernays really became a master of. That's how he did so much of what he did. And that's why data is the new oil, right? And this is why we've had those many conversations about them tracking all your data yeah. and putting it into supercomputers that create simulations of you. Uh, and they run constant simulations uh, with multiple revisions of every person in the world uh, and they pitch this information out, do do tests, come back, and this is the whole cybernetic process uh, of a feedback loop. It's a regenerative feedback loop where they test, retest, revise, review, uh, and come back over and over again. Uh, that's what this is, 
right? And so uh, that's the reason they're taking all the data. They, you know, aggregate it, put it in, and again, can do all these um, very accurate predictions uh, on what people are going to do, especially when they're programmed to do it. (laughs) Big data is just a modern extension of all the Bernays techniques. And Crow and I did a show on this years ago. And just looking at, Crow, when did we do that? Is that like three years ago probably at this point? And I can only imagine in my worst nightmares how much, it has jumped up just in this short amount of time since we, we, we had a whole bunch of stats and everything that we read. And they literally just took Bernays' work and then just extended it to today. But they've gotten very specific with it. They can target you specifically without you even realizing it because you didn't even realize you needed that new winter jacket you just ordered on Amazon. But they did. Right. Well, that, moreover, people, they, yeah, people they, say that all the time, though. And what they don't understand is how many times have you heard someone say, oh, they're spying on me um, because I talked, they don't need to. Yeah, I talked offline with someone about this badminton racket. And then all of a sudden, for the first time I saw the ads, the, they don't understand that the data has already figured out, even if all the data they've collected has nothing to do with the badminton racket that they knew before you knew that you needed a badminton racket. Well, they which, also probably led you there. <laughs> right? Well, they will after the fact when they know that, yes. that that's a possibility, but it gets worse because we did a show on the first major official public book that is a tome uh, that dealt with data collection. It's called The Age of Surveillance and Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And if you read a book like that, then you have to be able to understand that with all the data collection that's gone on, there's a map of everything. So when you look at what Bernays did, he was simply targeting regions or areas or, you know, parts of society. Um, This can be done everywhere in real time, and it can be tweaked to the individual recipient now. So (laughs) it's gone far beyond, you know, the wildest dreams of any of these dudes back before World War II. Right, and that, that's the thing. Bernays points out very something very important here, too. Uh, he points out uh, that it, research of the public to learn why and how it acts, both individually and as a group. See, he, he knew a person is smart, but people are dumb. And yep. he learned the art of controlling the masses, like, you know, large groups of people uh, changing their behavior simply through things like peer pressure and just social pressure, that kind of an idea. So, you know, the mass mentality. So he learned to differentiate between these things, trying to uh, convince an individual to behave in a certain way by themselves is a lot different than trying to convince an individual how to behave within a group structure or a That's group correct. setting. That is so. Correct. And that's that's part and parcel of exactly how they've really stretched this thing out in the age of big data here now. They could more easily target individuals and, uh, you know, get the effect they're looking for and even steer them into a group should they so desire to do so. Absolutely. Uh, so that that's kind of one of those things where they've really ex- expanded on Bernays. Well, and, social, and social media is the perfect um, vehicle for that, uh, to polarize people, to put them into little echo chambers, uh, and right. to, again, feed these little feedback groups to monitor all of it, use litmus tests, um, it is, and gather all the data. It's yeah, and we'll call that. it LifeLogger. I mean, Facebook. LifeLog. Oh, I mean, yeah, Facebook, two days later. Yeah, it's perfect. Well, people do it to themselves. The laws of networking showed that birds of a feather flock together. So just by simply having social media, people with similar viewpoints are already coalescing on by, you know, their own volition. Yeah, and that's what LifeLog was initially about is that using those networks, right? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, as a like with the idea that it's an organism, it's kind of a neural network and it has its own um, organic behavior. Uh, if you can monitor that, you can make predictions and boom, there you go. <laughs> hey, would you look at that? Just <laughs> to show you, there's five bridges in my town. Is there a way that I can cross every bridge in my town on my, on my evening walk without crossing one bridge twice? That's where it all started. That was the whole networking idea came out of that. Interesting. In the United States, the profession deals specifically with the problems of relationship between a group and its public. Its chief function is to analyze objectively and realistically the position. Oh, I just read that one, didn't I? What are, where are we at? I think I bumped my, my button. I planning, planning campaign. Yeah, I sent my page flying. Let's see. Yeah, I think you uh, lost your place there. We were totally after number did. four. Oh, here we yeah, go. Only after this preliminary groundwork has been go. firmly laid. Yeah. Only after this preliminary groundwork has been firmly laid is it possible to know whether the objectives are realistically attainable. Only then can the engineering can the engineer of consent utilize his resources of manpower, money, and time, and the media available. Oh, another another uh, expertise of uh, of Edward. Strategy, organization, and activities will be geared to the realities of the situation. The task must first be related to the budget available for manpower and mechanics. In terms of human assets, the consent engineer has certain talents, creative, administrative, executive, and he must know what these are. He should also have a clear knowledge of his limitations. The human assets need to be implemented by workspace and office equipment. All material needs must be provided by budget. Above all else, once the budget has been established and before a first step is taken, the field of knowledge dealing with the subject should be thoroughly explored. This is primarily a matter of collecting and codifying a store of information so that it will be available for practical, efficient use. Right, Amazon? This preliminary work may be tedious and exacting, but it cannot be bypassed. For the engineer of consent should be powerfully equipped with facts, with truths, with evidence, before he begins to show himself before a public. With data. With data. Data. With data. Lots and data. lots of data. Data. They didn't have Star Trek in his day. <laughs> <laughs> Surveillance. Oh, yes. Okay, the consent engineer should provide himself with the standard reference books on public relations, publicity, and public opinion. And Bernays uh, lists them, a bunch of them here. But he adds, and of course, the telephone book. The World Almanac, for example, contains lists of many of the thousands of associations in the United States, a cross-section of the country. Again, oh, the things he could have done if Google was around in his day. These and other volumes provide a basic library necessary to effective planning. At this point, uh, in now the we have the internet, so you don't even need all of these different things that Bernays was talking about there. Like you, you don't need to actually go. It, this was a lot of work back in that time. Mm-hmm. He, he, earned, he, he did earn his money physically. Well, yeah. do, you, do you not think that this uh, that those tools were put together for the benefit of continuing this work rather than for Absolutely. our benefit? Absolutely, right? It's, it's not. It was not put together for us, <laughs> right? No, that's it, just it wasn't what like. They oh, you guys, think. you guys need this. No, no, no. no. <laughs> It's the same way with a cell phone. You guys need this. No, no, it's a it's a tracking device. It's a way for them to collect all your data, and and with consent. Let's just kind of point that out, <laughs> mm. right? And I just it, it gives me the chills every time that he says the engineer of consent, the consent engineers. Oh God, that's it's so vile. Well, he's that also totally calling is. people assets, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
He's got a lot of uh, funny little terms for all this stuff. At this point in the preparatory work, the engineer of consent should consider the objectives of his activity. He should have clearly in mind at all times precisely where he is going and what he wishes to accomplish. He may intensify already existing favorable attitudes. He may induce those holding favorable attitudes to take constructive action. He may convert disbelievers. He may disrupt certain antagonistic points of view. <laughs> Anyone see what's going on in DC today? <laughs> yeah, disrupt per person, certain antagonistic points of view. So, um, yeah, who needs for a video? <laughs> yeah, disrupt antagonistic points of view. Um, just disable their account or, or uh, take down their videos. Think, think about it though. All, if Bernays was faced with trying to pull off. DC did tonight. Think about how much work it would do. Literally, they could say, who needs Bernays? We got video. Yeah, good point. Goals should be defined exactly. In a Red Cross drive, for example, funny that he brings that up, a time limit and the amount of money to be raised are set from the start. Much better results are obtained in a relief drive when the appeal is made for aid to the people of a specific country or locality rather than of a general area such as Europe or Asia. Help the people where the earthquake just hit. Donate today. Yep, burr, and it goes right to the Clinton Foundation. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yep, and you notice how every time there's a, any kind of um, disaster of any kind, they're first to get on TV and uh, ask you for your money, right, and goes to Red Cross, and <laughs> even with them openly stating that 92% goes to overhead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so just take. It's all right. Go ahead and do that. So let me take your money again. Insult to injury every freaking time. Yep. <clears throat> Studying the public. The objective must at all times be related to the public whose consent is to be obtained. That public is people. But what do they know? <laughs> what what their... do they know? <laughs> what are their present attitudes toward the situation with which the consent engineer is concerned? What are the impulses which govern these attitudes? What ideas are the people ready to absorb? What are they ready to do, given an effective stimulant? Make America great again. Do they get their ideas from bartenders, letter carriers, waitresses, Little Orphan Andy, a Annie, <coughs> or the editorial page of the New York Times? <laughs> Andy. Andy. Little Orphan Andy. <laughs> Andy. Mm. Freudian slit. Uh, what group leaders or opinion molders effectively influence the thought process of what followers? What is the flow of ideas from whom to whom? To what extent do authority, factual evidence, precision, reason, tradition, and emotion, big one there, play a part in the acceptance of these ideas? Oh, that's huge right there, right? So when you know to what extent authority, factual evidence, precision, reason, tradition, and emotion play, uh, you can avoid factual evidence when it's not in your favor and replace that with authority, uh, get rid of reason, use tradition and emotion, and use those. You know, you, you know, you enjoy smoking, and doctors question, are right though. behind you. Uh, how did you deduce any of this back in the day? <laughs> you know, how did you nail down any of this? Short of polling people, how would you possibly nail down any of this? Well, they've been uh, monitoring, you know, mail since certainly the 1930s, uh, opening all the letters and monitoring mail and telephone calls since they first had telephones. And every every point of communication that they give us is a way for them to monitor us. <laughs> okay, so back in the day, if you wanted to know if it was a bartender, a letter carrier, a waitress, little orphanella here, the editorial page, only one or two of those seems very obtainable to me. How the hell are you going to know what Orphan Annie did? 
you know, to someone's mind or a bartender for that matter. Well, it's just kind of a, a weird way to put this. So we have a, um, you, you know, a phrase that gets used in uh, marketing and PR. It says what get what gets measured gets done. Um, and so if you can set up a metrics that can accurately or to some degree uh, with reasonable um, security um, accurately measure something, you can to a fair degree uh, reasonably see what efforts are most effective. Uh, so I think that you could um, – again, this is what the point of a litmus test is, why you throw out certain things uh, almost as a throwaway but a single one-off event. Uh, you create an event and then you measure the metrics of that to see how effective it was and, and what you get. And you would do this across uh, varying uh, demographics in different places to see what kind of effect you get. So uh, I think that you could um, – again, using the, the law of large numbers and um, statistics as you have implied before, Crows, you could do this in specific different places with – um, I well identified de demographics. Um, you could create events, see how people responded to it, and then um, work from that. So I think yeah, you actually absolutely could do that. Even even, even with the technology in the 20s and 30s, absolutely. Think about how easy it is now because if you put a unique phrase on television around some big event, you'll know in real time through social media whether it's stuck or not and to what degree. What's if trending on Twitter? Yep. Right. I mean, we have yep. instant instant feedback, almost faster than instantaneous. <laughs> it, it is almost faster than that. Uh, pretty remarkable. But yeah, well, again, with the more data that you have, the the clearer the map is uh, with the more data points, right? Just like sampling um, in music, right? The, the higher the sampling frequency, the more accurate uh, and the more bits that you have, right? The, the more data points you have, the better dynamic range. Uh, so you have uh, a more accurate picture of it. And the same. So the more data points that you have to collect, um, the more more accurate sample you get uh, and you can uh, to a much better degree um, see what those trends are going to be and predict it and again once you if you begin to create events uh, and then measure the results of that you can uh, do a much better job of anticipating what the results are going to be and this is uh, again my observation of what all of this data collection a uh, huge portion of it is is not just I mean it is monitoring and control but that's what the, all of this is right so like a electronic fence but for your mind um, they program you to behave a certain way and this is what uh, when people are triggered that's <clears throat> that's the right word there has to be uh, a trigger put there it's a mental landmine that gets set off uh, they have a trigger mechanism for it so um you know this trap. is it's a trap <laughs> it's a trap uh, you know you know here's one thing you notice too about the way they do it now all these years forward is they always use a unique branding mechanism like Antifa, you know, it's not hard. To, it's not hard to pick that out of a search engine, is it? Um, or or uh, you know, the other uh, thing is, like, if you noticed, whenever it's going to be the typical dude that's supposedly murdered, that's going to launch their big branding mechanism, his name will be like Jim Brown. Well, there's too many Jim Browns in the world, so it'll be like Jim Eustace Brown or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Differentiate or die. Right. That's yeah. another. That's yeah. another marketing uh, axiom. Right. So you you must differentiate yourself from others to to uh, so you can be easily identified. The public's attitudes, assumptions, ideas, or prejudices result from definite influences. Yeah, yours. One must try to find out what they are what they are in any situation in which one is working. If the engineer of consent is to plan effectively, he must also know the group formations with which he is to deal, for democratic society is actually only a loose aggregate of constituent groups. Certain individuals with common social and or professional interests form voluntary groups. These include such great professional organizations as those of doctors, lawyers, nurses, and the like, the trade associations, the farm associations and labor unions, the women's clubs, 
the religious groups, and the thousands of clubs and fraternal associations. Formal groups, such as political units, may range from organized minorities to the large amorphous political bodies that are our two major parties. There is today even another category of the public group which must be kept in mind by the engineer of consent. The readers of the New Republic, or the listeners to Raymond Swing's program, are as much voluntary groups, although unorganized, as are the members of a trade union or a rotary club. To function a well... rotary club. <laughs> <laughs> or the Freemasons. Or Same the Freemasons. difference. To function well, almost all organized groups elect or select leaders who usually remain in a controlling position for stated intervals of time. These leaders reflect their followers' wishes and work to promote their interests. In a democratic society, they can only lead them as far as and in the direction in which they want to go. To influence the public, the engineer of consent works with and through group leaders and opinion molders on every level. You know, I can't remember if this is before or after the United Fruit debacle that he was involved with. I think this is before. But he was instrumental in manipulating uh, whichever South American country that was uh, with their leadership so that the company, the United Fruit Company, can keep doing whatever the hell they wanted and taking advantage of everything down there. You remember that, Crow? Yeah. Um, but the, what it was sticks, the 50s. Yeah, it does need, what sticks out more about that is where he's beginning to blur the lines of what supposedly a government would be involved in and <laughs> what a marketing firm is involved in. You see, even Aren't early on, when, well, when you were going through these things and he was talking, you know, w waving the red, white, and blue, it almost felt to me like he was saying, and who gives a damn about the government? Because what we're really talking about is whoever will pay the most. Well, no, that's, that, that, that the was term? his life. Was that where the term banana republic came from? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah so it you see just an, another thing that's an everyday part of our vernacular here, uh, banana republic. That's that Bernays contributed to that. <laughs> he was the one that engineered that whole thing. Well, that's like, again, you know, wouldn't you wouldn't you consider that would be what you'd expect, like a state department to be involved in or something? And even the term banana republic is governmental overtones all over it. <laughs> yeah. Value and techniques of research. To achieve accurate working knowledge of the receptivity of the public mind to an idea or, or ideas, it is necessary to engage in painstaking research. Such research should aim to establish a common denominator between the researcher and the public. It should disclose the realities of the objective situation in which the engineer of consent has to work. Completed, it provides a blueprint of action and clarifies the question of who does what, where, when, and why. He will indicate the overall strategy to be employed, the themes to be stressed, the organization needed, the use of media, and the day-to-day -day tactics. It should further indicate how long it will take to win the public and what are the short and long-term trends of public thinking. It will disclose subconscious and conscious motivations in public thought and the actions, words, and pictures that affect these motivations. It will reveal public awareness the lower high visibility of ideas in the public mind. Research may indicate the necessity to modify original objectives, to enlarge or contract the planned goal, or to change actions and methods. In short, it furnishes the equivalent of the mariner's chart, the architect's blueprint, the traveler's roadmap. Public opinion research may be conducted by questionnaires, by personal interviews, or by polls. 
Contact can be made with business leaders, heads of trade associations, trade union officials, and educational leaders, all of whom may be willing to aid the engineer of consent. The heads of professional groups in the communities, the medical association, the architects, the engineers, all should be queried. So should social service executives, officials of women's clubs, and religious leaders. Editors, publishers, and radio station and motion picture people can be persuaded to discuss with the consent with the consent engineer his objectives and the appeals and angles that affect these leaders and their audiences. The local unions or associations of barbers, railwaymen, clothing workers, and taxicab drivers may be willing to cooperate in the undertaking. Grassroots leaders are important. Such a survey has a double-barreled effect. The engineer of consent learns what group leaders know and do not know, to the, the extent to which they will cooperate with him, the media that reach them, appeals that may be valid, and the prejudices, the legends, or the facts by which they live. He is able simultaneously to determine whether or not they will conduct informational campaigns in their own right and thus supplement his activities. So there was a quick rundown, Crow, on what you were asking before. How did they do this back then? That was a, a, good, a good amount of things that he probably employed. Yeah. Um, it's crazy how much footwork used to be done to accomplish a task back in the day that is done so off in such an offhand way now. Yeah, and actually it's, it's done automatically today in a lot of the uh, different senses. Um, like if you look at uh, the data collection, data collections like instantaneous, uh, they have algorithms that could sort and collate the data and, you know, uh, figure different uh, strategies uh, just instantaneously. So, I mean, it, it, there's not even an awful lot of thought put into it like he had to do back then. Uh, now it's largely done via computer networks. So, you know, I mean, they've taken his ideas these these core principles and used them and amplified them to the extent that they are today and uh, you know we could see just basically how how it's affected people things as simple as uh, what he's saying up here as far as um, what pictures that affect these motivations he's talking about here the conscious and subconscious uh, motivations in public thought, the actions, words, and pictures that affect these motivations. Well, pictures, pictures worth a thousand words, isn't it? And uh, if you turn on the TV today, you're going to see all kinds of pictures that are there pretty much just to try to, you know, elicit an emotional response from you. And, uh, you know, and then they back that up with specific words, trigger words, and you know, branding terms that they're using. And implant this idea in your psyche in your subconscious mind so that's that's what they're working on now with that kind of thing and we could see this happening in real time today all you got to do is go turn on a television set and there's a couple words you'll pick up on uh, right away if you're you're listening as to what they're saying and you'll be able to see the images that they're showing you and you know the kind of emotional response they're trying to elicit from you with their their words that they're using so you could see how this is done. You could watch how it's done in real time on the news media today, right now, if you go ahead and wanted to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm choosing to ignore that right now because uh, I made the mistake of actually having the television turned on for a little while earlier after supper. And every, every single channel, like you, you couldn't get away from it. It was all over the place. So, um, you know, 
I choose not to participate in that nonsense. I, I, I got to ask, Wayne. We were, I was asking Jason earlier. So I predicted um, as soon as Trump spouted off about everything's a cheat, everything's a fraud, I said they will use the transfer of power for drama. Do you recall? Did that happen on this live show, Wayne? Do you remember? I remember having the conversation with you. I think it were did. Were we on I air? We were, I, I don't know if we were on air or not, but we definitely had that conversation. So, you know. Well, if it was on air, it's recorded. We, true. Well, that's another tell that Covidius Minimus is just about run its course when they got to start, you know, busting out the capital for drama, right? Themes, strategy, and organization. Now that the preliminary work has been done, it will be possible to proceed to actual planning. From the survey of opinion will emerge the major themes of strategy. These themes contain the ideas to be conveyed. They channel the lines of approach to the public, and they must be expressed through whatever media are used. The themes are ever-present, but intangible, comparable to what in fiction is called the storyline. <laughs> well, he just nailed it there, script, didn't he? Script, yeah. <laughs> the script, my boy, the script. <laughs> also known as the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> to be successful, the themes must appeal to the motives of the public. Motives are the activation of both conscious and subconscious pressures created by the force of desires. Psychologists have isolated a number of compelling appeals, the validity of which has been repeatedly proved in practical application. Once the themes are established, in what kind of a campaign are they to be used? The situation may call for a blitzkrieg or a continuing battle. Funny that he chose that term right after World War II because it probably wouldn't have been used before that. A combination of both or some other strategy. It may be necessary to develop a plan of action for an election that will be over in a few weeks or months, or for a campaign that may take years, such as the effort to cut down the tuberculosis death rate. Planning for mass per persuasion is governed by many factors that call upon all one's powers of training, experience, skill, and judgment. Planning should be flexible and provide for changed conditions. When the plans have been perfected, organization of resources follows, and it must be undertaken in advance to provide the necessary manpower, money, and physical equipment. Organization also cor correlates the activities of any specialists who may be called upon from time to time, such as opinion researchers, fundraisers, publicity men, radio and motion picture experts, specialists for women's clubs, and foreign language groups, and the like. You know, again, let's point out how he always tries to tie things to emotions. His choice of the word blitzkrieg in 1947, mm -hmm. well, come on, that World War II was just over and would have been still very fresh in the minds it would of have people. Been, it would have been an unknown word had that branding term not been used in World War II. So not only is he reusing the emotional term, but that was a branding mechanism the first time around. Nobody knew what a Blitzkrieg was until they were instructed. Unless they were German. <laughs> well, and it means lightning warfare, if I remember correct. Well, it was also tied to very kind of brutal actions to elicit the emotion. It was, uh, it's just, <laughs> he's, he's pulling a marketing term from a marketing campaign a few years earlier. That's all he's doing. Yeah, that, that's pretty much you have to remember. Bernays did have his hand in a lot of the uh, propaganda of the, the Second World War, so maybe he had something to do with the term Blitzkrieg coming out. Wasn't in German his first World. language? Uh, you know what? I think maybe it was. I'm, I, I don't quite remember. Yeah. Uh, Krauss, since you're back, can we take a minute to, to address the, uh, the lapel pins thing? Um, okay, so... 
I, I, we're talking about an email I got requesting lapel pins. Or are we talking about people wanting lapel pins? Well, I, I think this must be the same person asking us. And I tried explaining quickly earlier how it's it's just completely and utterly impossible for us to to deal with with the logistics of packaging and sending things out. Like we just don't have that kind of time. We don't have any time. Uh, we doubled down in March, and before we doubled down, we were at a full run. And the problem becomes is that's why we're forced. People wanted shirts, so we used Teespring. The reason we use Teespring is because they do it all and they deliver right. it. Yeah, we um, and we offered it no cost to recurring members. The the problem is, yeah, but there's a lot of things we'd like to do. We'd like to make another movie, but we we just can't. There's there's three of us that do all this, um, and we're pegged. We're pegged all the way over to the right. We're in the red. So we just can't take on any more things like that. Right. Uh, the, the lapel pins are right next to the leftover cocaine on the website. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I missed that. What was that, I know. what was that secretary of state that always had the big old obnoxious brooches? She looked like a man. Madeline oh, Albright. Albright, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll tell you what. Well, think about lapel See pins. See something, say something. Sweep. If we can get some sweet Madeline Albright-sized ones. <laughs> I was going back even further to, like, Bella Abzug. So that's <laughs> now, now, don't get us wrong. We appreciate the offer and all that, but it's literally to the point that if somebody orders something, none of us possibly could have the time or the capability to package it and, and ship it off and make sure all that's right. Like, well, there's, it's just too it's much. Actually, yeah, it's actually more than that because even when things are right, something goes wrong. Then we start getting emails. Right now on an average day, I'm looking at 500 emails. If I spend a minute on each email, that's 500 minutes in a day. Um, so you've just got to understand anything that, that adds more, even just correspondence, uh, it's a bridge too far. And, you know, we'd love to do these things. And I like the idea. I'd like to see lapel pins. It's cool. Problem is, is we just we're pegged. The tactics. At this point, it will be possible to plan the tactics of the program, for example, to decide how the themes are to be disseminated over the idea carriers, the networks of communication. Do not think of tactics in terms of segmental approaches. The problem is not to get articles into a newspaper or obtain radio time or a range of motion picture newsreel. It is rather to set in motion a broad activity, the success of which depends on interlocking all phases and elements of the proposed strategy implemented by tactics that are timed to the moment of maximum effectiveness. An action held over but one day may fall completely flat. Skilled and imaginative timing has determined the success of many mass movements and campaigns, the familiar phenomena so typical of the American people's behavior pattern. Emphasis of the consent engineer's activities will be on the written and spoken word, geared to the media and designed for the audiences he is addressing. He must be sure that his material fits his public. He must prepare copy written in simple language and 16-word sentences for the average school-age public. Dumb it down, people. Dumb it down. That's what he's saying. Some copy will be aimed at the understanding of people who have had 17 years of schooling. He must familiarize himself with all media and know how to supply them with material suitable in quantity and quality. Primarily, however, the engineer of consent must create news. News. Bingo, there it is. <laughs> news is not only an inanimate thing. It is the overt act that makes news. And news, in turn, shapes the attitudes and actions of people. Thank you, Mr. Bernays. You just told us everything right there. A good criterion as to whether something is or is not news is whether the event juts out of the pattern of routine. 
The developing of events and circumstances that are not routine is one of the basic functions of the engineer of consent. Events so planned can be projected over the communication systems to infinitely more people than those actually participating, and such events vividly dramatize ideas for those who do not witness the events. Yahtzee! (laughs) Winner, winner, chicken dinner. There it is. There you go. Somebody buy that man in a cup of coffee. There, there you go. You got the um, <laughs> tragedy thespians out there, the trauma thespians. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Show it up. But yeah, just uh, create something that's uh, novel, right? And uh, sp- spins your narrative, supports your narrative, and it doesn't matter if it ever happens so long as it does exist in the mind of the people and uh, supports uh, one of those decision-making processes that we discussed earlier. And again, if you can avoid logic and uh, facts <laughs> – and just stick with emotion. Bingo. You got can, it. Can a virus be novel? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah I if think it's so. If it's a uh, if, if you're drinking new. a corona. Can yeah. a novel be fiction? No. <laughs> Let's just leave the sinking ship. The rats can have it. The imaginatively managed event can compete successfully with other events for attention. News no. newsworthy events. Imaginatively managed event. Wow. That's, 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 a, that's per, a great pretty term. well described yeah. most of those uh, most of those events. Yeah, exactly. Newsworthy events involving people usually do not happen by accident. Boom. Bingo. There it is. <laughs> kind of like fishing place New Hampshire, they are planned deliberately to accomplish a purpose to influence our ideas and actions. Boom. Events may also be set up in chain reaction. By harnessing the energies of group leaders, the engineer of consent can stimulate them to set in motion activities of their own. They will organize additional specialized subsidiary events, all of which will further dramatize the basic theme. Right, David Hogg? Well, you just put put together um, that that last paragraph by itself. Uh, well describes the last decade. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, they had, much. if they had to read this paragraph before the evening news tonight, there, there might be some backlash. <laughs> there might be a little bit of pushback. Yeah. All right. Let's get this last bit done here. The conclusion. Communication is the key to engineering consent for social action. But it is not enough to get out leaflets and bulletins on the mimeograph machines, to place releases in the newspapers, or to fill the airwaves with radio talks. Words, sounds, and pictures accomplish little unless they are the tools of a soundly thought-out plan and carefully organized methods. Get your vaccine today. If the plans are well-formulated and the proper use is made of them, the ideas conveyed by the words will become part and parcel of the people themselves. Where's your mask? We're all in this together. This is the new normal. We're We're all in this together. together. Social distancing. When the public is convinced... Get this. When the public is convinced of the soundness of idea, masks save lives, it will proceed to action. People translate an idea into action suggested by the idea itself because there's a pandemic on. Whether it is ideological, political, or social, they may adopt or makes any damn sense. <laughs> they may adopt a philosophy that stresses racial and religious tolerances. They may vote a new deal into office, or they may organize a consumers buying strike. But such results do not just happen in a democracy that can be accomplished principally by the engineering of consent. And by Ta-da. the way, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. Oh. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope 
Uh, if you weren't familiar with Mr. Bernays, you check him out. Rose, do you want to tell people what episodes you probably already did that we've done Bernays yeah. on? And uh, when I have time, I'd definitely like to do a third one on Bernays. But make absolutely certain that you understand just how important the work this man did is to everything that's going on now. Because they've taken it, hit it with some steroids, and Ivan Drago is about to punch Rocky he, really hard in the face. I think I'd actually take all, get this idea. Everything he did became antiquated um, in the last 15 or 20 years um, because at the time he was doing this, when they wanted to reach a lot of people, as he was pointing out, we have to choose our avenues. There's mailers. There's magazines. Now, the same group of people own every channel. Not only that, they own all radio and television. They can get their message all at once. So if I had to venture a guess, they're treating everyone in the room as if they had six years of school now, and the rest is video and planning for the video. Absolutely. I noted that in this, even in this document, he used uh, sentences of sixteen words or less. <laughs> so he chose his target. He knew we'd be reading. As yeah. Idiots. <laughs> yeah, he was targeting his audience. On a monopia. Well, I, I actually started reading Crystallizing Public Opinion, and it, this article was written just like the book in that very short, concise. To the, to the point kind of thing where he's just delivering point after point after point. It's not like exciting reading or anything like that. But it's oh. well thought out and concise. That's the thing. It's concise. And that's the important part uh, about anything like this. Uh, this is actually uh, the, the handbook for doing this. Uh, the Bernays episodes, by the way, thank you, Rose, are episodes 78 and 204. And uh, if you're looking for something else, I, I both of my presentations I did at the Flat Earth Conference in 20, uh, what would that be, 2019 in Dallas is out there for free. And also the one I just did with Karen B. at Flattoberfest uh, in October. Those are all available for free if you want to see it. And I tied Bernays to all of these things. All right, so we're just about there, guys. Who wants to uh, talk about what they got coming up and anything else they want to put up for their final thoughts? I can hear Baldini chopping that Coke. <laughs> Pepsi products. We only have pe- we only serve pep- Pepsi products here. What are you chopping it? No with Coke, a Pepsi. Hammer. <laughs> chopping it with a Pepsi. Weren't you paying attention? Chopping broccoli. Pepsi products. You chopping, chopping it with Michael broccoli. Jackson's burned head. There you go. <laughs> chopping broccoli. <laughs> chopping broccoli. Oh goodness. Oh dear. Um, all right, Wayne. How about you go first? Okay. Uh, what do I got? Um, I I don't really have anything much coming up. Um, I think I'm doing uh, a show here with Robert Phoenix sometime next week. So I should be on that, and I think I'm recording with you guys next week too, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. So what are we uh, doing again? I think we were going to look at the origins of uh, what the actual occult aspects of the Star Wars franchise. Are. Oh yeah, that's right. So that the should Jedi. be an interesting. Yes, the the Jedi. Uh, so people know it's it, it ties back to. Uh, the ancient Egyptian cycle of Osiris. So mm. that that's what that's all about. And we'll explore those ideas and more in that episode. It should be very good. All right, Crow, and we are releasing, let's see, what number are we up to? We just recorded so many shows, I don't even know what number we're releasing. Is it 286 is next? 85 is next? 285 with KL is back. Um, I was going to put it out tonight, but I'm just too burned out. I didn't have time because there's all these documents 
um, that people are going to get to download, which actually Rose, while we were doing this, was finishing them. So we were, Rose and I were trying to do this and that at the same time so that I can get these out tomorrow. Um, she also reminded me, she's telling you to get the PO box. Can you believe I now have um, what was sent to me is all the secret downer material? I am so freaking busy. Um, I'm two weeks overdue on that. I could have had this stuff two weeks ago. That's how busy I am. But there it is. So tomorrow, probably by 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'll try to have 285 out. Um, I've got it all together now. I just got to build all the pages, do the bumper video. Rose just finished all the images for all the documents because she had to redact them. Um, but we're ready to go on that. So 10 a.m. tomorrow, my time. Crow, did you mention all the paperwork to be downloaded? Yeah, that's what Rose was working on. We have, actually, she just sent me, we were having trouble because we had to redact everything. What we got sent had all kinds of identifiable stuff in it. So it looks like we have 13 JPEGs, and then we have, the, that's our one material. Um, the docs are in 13 JPEGs, and then uh, the our two docs, um, which is, God, there's so much information here. It looks like it's about, I don't know if I had to guess, 10, 15 pages uh, in PDF form. That's everything people are going to get to download. So I still got to create all the pages and get the zip file together, and we're going to serve this off my server because these are probably things, I don't know, they might get censored if they were out in public. Hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, Paul, Danny, what you want to talk about before we sign off? Um, let's see. Okay, I know that uh, Rose is starting to feel a little bit better, which is awesome. Uh, she, I think she's still going to take uh, a little bit of time off and come back next week. So I'll be back uh, tomorrow morning on my channel, Unintended Consequences, with Cocky Pop <laughs> Report. Karen B will sit in and join me for that. Uh, that's at uh, 6 a.m. Pacific time and 9 a.m. East Coast. And then I'm back on the weekend, Unintended Consequences, Saturday morning at 9. Uh, and then Sunday, of course, 7 a.m. Pacific time and, uh, let's see, then 5 p.m. Pacific time if Solar Scripture. So uh, that's all the, the regular stuff there, and uh, hope Rose feels better. I'm glad you're feeling somewhat better and looking forward to uh, reuniting. Reunited. Are, are you really doing Cocky Pop? I'll make the logo, man. That's got to be like a rooster sitting on a Coke, doesn't it? Yeah, it's Cocky Pop. It's the Cocky Pop um, report. When, it, when she's not with me and I do it on my channel instead of Poppycock, it's Cocky Pop. <laughs> you're like the golden dawn you're inverting everything exactly so anyway that's the scoop there and then of course you know just whenever i can make it back here but uh yeah trying to redo my schedule this year uh in the first quarter and hopefully devote a bit more time to uh, the community here and um so there you go all right everybody got their final thoughts off ready to sign off for the week I'll take that I as a yes. I think so. <laughs> I think we're all good. All right. So that was the first show of the year. We'll be back for many, many more. Uh, probably more Bernays stuff at some point because I just really love delving into the work this man did because I, I definitely recognize just how important what he did was. All right. That's going to do it, folks. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone. <laughs>
Thank you. 